Good morning. It's really good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, a little update on my family and I. You may have noticed that my wife is not here again this morning. Uh, we've had a newborn in our house for one week now. And uh, the good news is he's gaining weight. We are too. So that kind of goes hand in hand. Um, but I wanted to let you guys know that things are going really well for us. And if you think about my wife, Andy, you can pray for her because uh, she has borne a lot of the weight of needing to be uh, up and down and up and down and up and down, uh, but we're really loving what we're getting to do, and it's been a great opportunity for our family to love somebody who can't take care of themselves, and so it's been good for us to do. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 12 today, and right now we are traveling through the new vision that we have as a church here at True North. Uh, we introduced these ideas in October of last year, and we're taking time to go through each individual principle, each outcome of it all being about Jesus, uh, one per week. And so last week, we started with the core principle of who we are as a local church, that it's all about Jesus, everything we do. And that applies to us as an organization, as a large organism, but it also applies to us individually. And so we got, we got a little bit practical last week about getting out of the way and maybe opening our hands a little bit with how we interact with God and then yielding to Jesus, that if it's really all about him, then keeping our eyes on him will keep us out of the spotlight. So we're going to move today into the second uh, kind of ring. If you remember the way we talked about these things in uh, October, Jesus is at the center, and then if that's true and if that stays true, we have three outcomes or three kind of internal facing ministries is what we've called those things. And one is belonging, one is becoming, and one is beholding. And today we're going to speak about belonging. And specifically the way that we talk about this is we say that at True North Church we belong to Jesus and to each other. So we're going to talk about those two ideas today, belonging to Jesus and belonging to each other. I don't know what your relationship with Christian community is, uh, but to be honest with you, though I've been a believer more than three quarters of my life so far, uh, my relationship and understanding of Christian community is relatively new in my life. And I wish that wasn't true. Um, I think some of that is probably because of the generation I was born into, some of it is the part of the world I grew up in, and some of it is just happens to be the church that I was saved into. It wasn't super into community in general. And so if you can go back in time with me a little bit, um, in 2016, my wife and I had moved to Kentucky. Uh, we were both from Texas originally, and we made our first big move away from all of our family. And uh, we had gone to Kentucky because I felt like God was telling me that I needed to go to seminary. I didn't really want to go to seminary. I wasn't excited about furthering my education. Some people love that. That's great if that's you. I would rather read a book in my living room than have to sit in a class with a bunch of people who think they know more than me and probably do and make that clear over and over again. So we decided to move. We went to seminary. And about a year and a half into that process, we realized that maybe the reason God had brought us to Kentucky was not just to go to seminary, but maybe it was actually so that I could start serving in a church vocationally. We had our first opportunity to do that. Uh, I think it was about the middle of that year of 2016, and I had been part-time at a small church about an hour away from the big city in Kentucky where we, well, big is relative, but big for Kentucky, where we uh, moved to go to seminary, and we'd been excuse me, driving back and forth, it was an hour commute, and the time had come for that church to offer us the opportunity to go from part-time to full-time, potentially. And this was a big deal for this church. It wasn't a big church, it was very, very old, but they'd only ever had for their entire, I think, 150-year history, they'd had two full-time staff before this. And so I was gonna be the new third full-time staff member, and as you know, people who've done things the same way for a very long time sometimes struggle a little bit with uh, understanding or getting excited about change. So this had been a challenge for us. I mean, it had been a year's worth of meetings, of me standing on a stage and 
being kind of bombarded with questions. What was I going to do that was going to justify 40 hours? If you ever want to know whether or not people value you, ask them to give you a little bit more of their money, and then you'll understand whether or not they really understand what it is that you do. So I had to answer questions, and I had to end up writing some essays that we posted on our website, and I had to preach, and all these things had happened, and finally it was going to, we were going to move. We were going to move our family from the city where the seminary was an hour east to this small town to go full-time with this church. And not only that, we had to go find a house. We wanted somewhere to live, and we thought it was important to put roots down in this community. And so about two days before all of that was supposed to happen, I'm still in school. I'm juggling trying to move out of the apartment that we've been in now, and our landlord wasn't making that easy at all, and also move into our new house, and my new job was starting, and one of my first responsibilities was to solo lead a mission trip seven or eight hours away from our city, and all this is happening at one time. No joke, we moved boxes into our house, and then we were gone for a week and a half, and then we came back to boxes, which is not a lot of fun. So I'm getting ready to do this, and one of my good friends from seminary, a guy that I've actually been friends with for a really long time since I was a kid, he called me, and he asked me if he could take me to lunch. And I was like, yeah, you can take me to lunch. I feel like all I've been doing is working. So yes, if you want to celebrate me a little bit and what God's doing in my life, yeah, you can buy me a piece of pizza. We'll do that. So we get together. We go to this pizza place in Kentucky that we used to go to a lot together. And we sit down at our normal table. And uh, anyway, we're, we're eating. And the conversation took a turn. It went from being pretty easy, pretty laid back. Like I said, we've been friends a long time. So we just talk about whatever, you know, no big deal, no agenda. But I could feel that the mood changed because he like, he like leaned forward in his chair all of a sudden and he looked right at me. And I was like, oh, we're not just talking about fantasy football anymore. This is serious. And he said to me this. He said, Philip, I'm worried about this move for you. I don't know if it's the right thing. And I'm thinking, you're telling me this now? In 48 hours, I'm, I'm going to be a homeowner in a city an hour away from where I live now, where this church already is. So I started to get indignant. I started to feel like, I don't... I don't even know where this is going, but I just thought I'm going to close my mouth. We've been friends a long time. Maybe he has a point. And so I sat and listened to him. And he explained to me that his primary concern was that when we moved to this church, because of the demographics of the church, how old the people were in the congregation, and because of how far away we were going to be from our seminary community, that we would become isolated, that we wouldn't have any community. And frankly, I think he was right. I think he was wise to warn me of this because the rough median age of the church was mid-50s. The next youngest couple, aside from my wife and I, we were 25, 24 at the time. The next youngest couple was in their late 30s, early 40s, which isn't bad, but that's a pretty big difference. Those 15 years really matter in where you are in life and what you're doing. And what he knew about this church, which is true about many churches, is that I would be upfront, I would be publicly leading enough, I would be involved in enough things that people would assume that I must be spiritually healthy. And so they wouldn't ask, they wouldn't probe, they wouldn't dig. Everybody, else, everybody would kind of act like it was somebody else's responsibility to check in on me because I was full-time staff, I was an associate pastor, so therefore I must be close to God, right? I must be confessing my sin, I must be in repentance regularly. Well, maybe you don't know this, but you can work at a church and go through the motions just as easily as you do at a factory or in a cubicle or anywhere else that you work. But I laughed him off. We had this lunch meeting. I didn't accept what he had to say. The irony is he was probably the only person aside from my wife at that time that I was actually in community with, and he cared so much about me that he was warning me about a coming lack of community, but instead of hearing him, instead of accepting that role and responsibility that he was trying to play in my life, I just shut him down. I built a wall between us. Our relationship changed after that conversation because I was offended. I couldn't believe that he wouldn't just be clapping and cheering for me and so excited about me launching into this career opportunity that I had. Many of you know what that moment feels like, maybe not being called out quite as much, but you understand what it's like to stand at the threshold of your career. 
Like you've done other jobs. Many of you have gone through this. This is what led you to Alaska. Alaska was maybe the first time that you were able to step all the way into the job that you're hoping could potentially be your career forever. And so you know what it's like to weigh these things and to have taken them really seriously. And for somebody to get in the middle of that and start poking holes in your plan, that's painful. So I, I laughed him off, to be honest with you. Later that day, I went home. I told my wife, this is crazy. I guess this guy has changed. I thought that I knew him but he can't even support us. And we laughed out loud in our home at how ridiculous it was that he would be worried about community in our lives. Who did he think he was? Because that's what you do when you're humble, right? People give you helpful criticism and you laugh at them. No, that's not what humility looks like at all. And that's foreshadowing because three years later, when we left that church to move here, my friend had been exactly right. I had been isolated. And the things that we talked about last week, making everything all about Jesus, those are lessons I had to learn at that small church in Kentucky. So I don't regret my time there. I had to learn to not try to figure God out all the time, let him live outside of my box. I had to learn to not try to buy him off or convince him to do things my way, and I really had to yield to him. But outside of that personal growth and maturity that I gained, I had become so frustrated with the relationships that I had with people at that church with nobody that I could really talk to about that, aside from my wife, who was already in those relationships with me, already bearing the weight of those things, that the best way I can describe my state when we moved here was probably emotionally constipated. And that's gross, and that's what it felt like. It felt gross. It felt like I was clogged up. As soon as my wife and I visited True North, when we were going through this process, we realized how important community was gonna be in this church. And how important it had been in the past up until that point. And it was so refreshing for us. It's one of the things that moved our family from being willing, just willing, to being eager, really excited. We got a taste of what it meant to be in community with people and for people to tell us the truth. That should seem like it's normal in churches, right? For church people to say the truth to other church people, but it doesn't take very many rounds of you saying the truth and somebody coming back at you aggressively like I did with my friend before you go, either the church isn't for me or I'm going to have to be quiet if I'm going to fit in here. And those are lessons that I'm afraid we not only learned, but we helped reinforce when we were at that church. Andy and I carried a lot of weight on our shoulders when we were there, and I think probably the most negative thing that came out of us not being in any kind of community while we were there is she and I were the only people who ever knew what was wrong in our marriage. We were the only people who knew how badly things could be going at any one moment. Our fears, our, our anxieties, the, the things that we had done that hurt each other, the, the sin in our hearts. So as we look at the vision of True North Church, today we're talking about what I would think is probably one of the more healthy holdovers from our previous vision. When you look at the banners on this side of the room, you see belong, grow, and serve. Belong is what we're talking about today. And I think for most of us, probably, belonging has been one of the more healthy and more beneficial and more helpful things that's been a part of our experience at True North Church. That's what I hear a lot of times from people. That they come for lots of different reasons, but typically people stay because they find a life group here. And they lose their isolation, and that's just so valuable to them that it's worth whatever it costs them to make it work and make the meetings happen and and deal with maybe the, the other things in the church that are not always their favorite thing. So I understand that as we navigate this, I'm going to have to be a little bit nuanced today. And I want to be careful. I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and act like we have to rebuild something that's working. But I want to be able to take a hard look at what's good. Like just because the machine of belonging may have been running so far, I still think it's fair for us to ask questions and to look to God's word to understand what his vision is. Because here's what I don't want you to do. 
I don't want you to be a person who attends a church and who loves that church and who becomes more and more and more isolated every single week. I don't want you to do that. And I think it's possible because it happened to me. Like I, w- I was up here. I was on a stage. I was preaching to people about God's word. I was teaching students every week that they needed to be honest with each other. And I just felt like, I don't know, I was doing enough. Maybe I was busy enough that it was justifiable for me to not dig and fight to make this happen in my life. I think you'll see in God's word, we're going to get a precedent from scripture today that this is not only important, but it's necessary if we really expect to grow and if we expect to become people who look like and sound like and live like God does. So to that end, let's drill down into what I would call the first real outcome of everything being about Jesus. If it's all about Jesus, then one of the outcomes of that is that we belong to Jesus and to each other. So uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, we'll have the verses up here if you haven't had a chance to head that way yet. The Apostle Paul is communicating to a church, so this is fitting for you and I. We should take these words at face value. There's really no interpretation necessary here for us. He's just going to tell us the truth, and then we have to decide if if we believe it or not, which I think is refreshing. But Paul's using an analogy. He's been in the middle of talking to a group of people who are having some trouble accepting one another. There's an aisle down the middle of their church, and not just physically, and, and some people sit on one side and some people sit on the other, and what that aisle is doesn't really matter for the sake of our context today, but suffice it to say, churches have always had disagreements about things that are not central, that are not Jesus. So Paul's going to communicate in these verses one of the ways that we can think about how we fit together as a body, and then I'm going to try to help you understand the practical implications of that. So let's start reading here in verse 12 of First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, just as the body is one, and just as that body has many members, and just as all the members of that body, though there are many of them, are still one body, that's the way it is with Christ. That's how Jesus is. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. So there you go. That's the aisle that's kind of dividing this church, the one that he's writing to, whether we were slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. So the same thing saved you. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your problems were. Verse 14. He's going to now lean into this analogy. He says, for the body, he's talking about the human body, does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, well, that wouldn't really matter is what Paul's saying. (laughs) That wouldn't make it less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, well, then where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, then where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, or you can read this in a way that he's saying, this is the way that it is, God has arranged members in the body, he's talking about the body of Jesus, each one of them according to God's choice. So there you go. If it's all about Jesus, right, we can step out of the spotlight a little bit. God is moving. God is working. God is choosing. Verse 19, if all were just a single member, then where would the body be? There wouldn't be one body. As it is, there are many parts, and yet there's one body made out of those parts. So 2 Corinthians is presenting you and I with a theology of belonging. This is the way that God sees his church. That's what I'm trying to tell you. As you're trying to understand who God is, as you're trying to get to know his character, These verses are communicating to us that it's important to God that we understand what it means to belong to one another. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul wouldn't take a big chunk at the conclusion of a letter that he's writing to clarify this. The whole chapter, all of chapter 12, is a detailed analogy for how Christians are supposed to think of each other in the local church. And you'll notice in verse 12, if you still have your Bible open, that it begins with Jesus. It starts with being ordered in Christ, and then as a result of being ordered in Christ, we are ordered together as a body. But without Christ as the head, there is no body. 
doesn't, there's, there's nothing to be a part of. There's nothing to join into. And so that's why we say belonging the way that we say it. We belong to Jesus. That's primary. He's first. And then to each other. So our relationship with Jesus is connected to and has everything to do with whether or not we are in community with each other. It means that we are ultimately accountable to Jesus for whether or not we are connected as a body. I think it's important to see in verse 12 that we're all a part of Jesus because I think that's a degree of possession that, frankly, I don't hear Christians talk about very much. You hear Christians talk about how they, how they relate to Jesus. We talk about following him, and we should do that. That's good. He wants us to do that. We sing about Jesus inhabiting our lives or filling our lives, and that's true, and he does. And we often think of ourselves as part of the church, which is good and right. But Paul just said that we are actually part of Jesus. And that's a little bit different. Maybe it didn't sink in. I think it's possible that reading through this passage, it might be a little bit obtuse if you haven't read the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians recently, and you probably haven't done that. Um, Look back at verse 12, if you you don't mind. Take a look at that. And if you guys don't mind pulling the slide back up for us, that will help. We're just going to look at the beginning of, of this passage again. Paul says that the human body is one thing. It's a single organism. You have one body, so you know that, right? You're like, yeah, of course, I understand. I have a single body. This is easy, right? That body's made up of parts. It's almost so obvious that it doesn't make a lot of sense to camp out here. But if you look at the last five words in verse 12, so it is with Christ. That takes a very obvious idea that you have a body and your body is made up of one parts, and it applies it to a God who sometimes feels impossible to know. So what Paul is not trying to do is simply motivate action in your life. He's trying to help you understand something about God. God made a decision. God could have built a group of people out of sinful humanity, which he did do, and then he could have been like, cool, you guys are going to kind of be like my fan club in a sense. You're going to think about me, talk about me, share me with anybody that you can, but I'm going to ultimately keep you separate from me. Like in the same way that a smart celebrity never gets too close to their most adoring fans, do you know what I'm talking about? That would probably have kept God's hands a little cleaner if that had been the way he chose to relate to us. But instead, God decided to bring us, who are really, really awful people, if we're being honest with ourselves, not only into his family, but to graft us surgically into a new Frankenstein body, and then he put Jesus at the head of that thing. That's a lot more messy. That's a lot more challenging. Paul is trying to help us understand that this is not just one way to think about what it means to belong, to be a part of the body of Christ. This is the way. This is it. Any lesser degree of understanding, any minimalization of what it means to belong to Jesus and each other that doesn't hold you to the same standard of being a body part in the body of Jesus, it's wrong. And it's worth me saying that to you because it would be easy to sort of tiptoe around this concept. If you're like me and you're sitting at a restaurant with a friend of yours who's really concerned about whether or not you're going to be in community in the next step of your life, it would be easy to disqualify that person like I did by saying, well, I'm just introverted. I've always done better when I don't let people get too close. My personality lends itself more toward action than conversation. And and men can be that way. Men often connect better doing something together, whereas I think sometimes women connect better by simply just being, being near each other, being next to each other. So maybe there's a little bit of legitimacy to that. But it's not a good reason to deny what the Bible is telling you is your natural state as a Christian. What's expected of us here is that we would feel a little bit of tension. I don't think Paul's thinking that there's any church in the world who's going to read this and go, great, we're doing this right now, perfectly. You're right, Paul. We all knew it. As soon as we got baptized into church membership, our heads came out of the water and the Spirit of God said, you are the ears of the church. And we went, I'm the ears. 
I'm the ears. Everybody knows it. I'm the ears now. You're welcome. God gave me to you. I'm going to be listening, and I'll tell you what's going on out in the world. No, we often don't know who we are. We don't always know how we fit in. So there's supposed to be an element of you and I looking at this and going, this seems aspirational a little bit. Well, good. Good. God's calling us, I think, into something that isn't always natural for you and I. And that should be normal for us as Christians, right? That God is calling us into something that isn't natural. If the body has parts, but is still all one body, and if Jesus is like that, then that means that Jesus has parts that together make up a body. So I'm going to ask you to do something, and I'm being serious about this. Would you please hold up your hand? I'll do mine too, so you're not alone. Thank you. Pick whatever hand. doesn't matter. You probably picked your right hand. Okay, that's good. If you'll keep your hand up, can you also lift up a foot? You're sitting, so it'll be a little easier for you. Oh, yeah. Still got it right here. Boom. Okay, now stick your tongue out. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. That was just for me. I don't even know if you did it because you have a mask on, so there you go. You got away with it. Okay, you put your hands down. Your hand is your hand, right? It belongs to you. It's nobody else's hand. I wanted you to hold it up because if you're like me, it helps to kind of feel where you are. Remind yourself this is real. And your foot is your foot. It belongs to you. It doesn't belong to anybody else. What Paul is saying is that your feet and your hand also belong to each other. Now, that makes sense because if you were in some kind of horrible tragedy and your body was dismembered, the people in your life who you love would try to reassemble you like a puzzle, roughly, right, in order to have some kind of viewing. If you lost your life, I'm just telling you, it's the way it is. So we know that your hands and your feet go together. You have fingerprints on both hands that match you up. You have DNA in your cells that you and I can't see by looking at, but they require that your body works together with your body parts and your pieces. We understand this. But here's what I want to ask you. Do the parts of your body, and this would be a yes or no, it's rhetorical, but you can answer it in your own mind. Do the parts of your body understand that they belong to each other? Well, you might go, no, that's weird. I have a brain, and my brain is the one that kind of governs over all the parts of my body. I would argue that the parts of your body do understand this, that it's very natural for you. Here's what I mean by that. If you're carrying something heavy through a doorway, and a big heavy door is about to slam down on your hands, your foot is going to take care of your hand. Do you see what I'm saying? Your foot's going to take some responsibility for what's about to happen to your hand because it's all one body. And you're not going to go away from that experience and tally and go, okay, the foot went out of its way to help the hand today. So that means tomorrow the hand better do something nice for the foot. That would be so weird, wouldn't it? But sometimes we, we treat each other that way in the church a little bit. Like my family was sick and you brought me a meal and so now I'm going to feel deeply guilty in my soul until you get sick next time so I can pay you back is a real situation that happens to real Christians. What about if there's a sharp rock in your shoe? Is it the foot's responsibility to get that out on its own? No, you're going to get on your knee, you're going to use your hands, you're going to untie your shoe, you're going to take the rock out, put the shoe back on, and then all of you is going to be in better shape because the rock has been removed. Our bodies naturally function this way. That's why it's a good analogy for what the church is supposed to look like. But most churches don't. And I'm not mad at anybody about that, but it's my responsibility as one of the people who communicates God's word to you to tell you there's probably a little bit more for us than what we've been experiencing. Life group is good and right and necessary. It's a prerequisite to membership of this church. That's not changing anytime soon. But what you do in that life group is not something that me or any other elder can control. Even if you come to the life group that we help lead, we just can't. We can't force you to be engaged. In the same way that if you had sharp rocks in your shoes, you could walk around with sharp rocks in your shoes if you really wanted to. And your hands and your feet would just have to deal with it and you would be in pain and it wouldn't be very much fun. Maybe it would save you a little bit of humility. I don't know. Maybe you live in a world where you think that nobody should ever get on their knees. 
right? And that, and that it's better and right to just be tough and it doesn't matter what's going on with the bottom of your feet. You wear your shoes and you deal with it. We treat each other that way spiritually sometimes. We white knuckle our way through stuff and as silly as it feels when I explain it to you about your physical body, I think that's what it looks like when God looks into the way that we do community sometimes. It looks a little bit ridiculous to him because he understands what he died to purchase for you and I, intimacy, communication, being close to one another in a way that feels like family. Here's a principle for you. If it's all about Jesus, then what Jesus has decided the best way is is for us to relate with each other like the parts of a body. Verse 18 says that God arranged this. It wasn't my idea or anybody else's. Verse 19 tells us if we were all the same, that wouldn't do any good for us or for God. And verse 20 tells us that this is just the way that it is. So if it's all about Jesus, we don't have to try to figure out a way around this or, or to make total logical sense of why God ordered it this way. We can yield to him. So we have a theological concept, a principle for what it means for the body to function the way that it's supposed to. Turn to the book of Acts, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 2. If 2 Corinthians 12 is the theology of belonging, Acts chapter 2 is the model. This is what it can look like. This is kind of like an idealistic, almost a utopian picture of what it means to be in right community with one another. Beginning in verse 41... One of the apostles has just preached a sermon. Thousands of people have heard that sermon and repented immediately, and the first church is born. There is no church before this. Here's how those people live. So those who received his word, the word of the apostle who was preaching, they were baptized. And there were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. That's a pretty good sermon. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And here's what happened to them as they did those things. Awe came upon every soul. That's worship. That's not just actions of worship, that's a sense of worship. And many wonders and many signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the very first church in the Bible. And these people love God because Jesus has made them brand new and they are immediately willing to surrender their independence in the name of becoming limbs and organs and tissues in the body of Jesus. And in the church, we like to talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus, right? It works its way into our worship songs about every 10 years or so. And what I think we mean when we say that, that we want to be the hands and feet of Christ, is that we want to be missionaries. We want to be ambassadors in some sense. It doesn't mean we have to move to another country, but wherever we are, we want to represent Jesus and show love. But I think maybe we're forgetting that while we're on our way out into the world, we are also supposed to care for the rest of the parts of the body. And sometimes we feel a little bit of weird Christian guilt if we give money to another Christian to help them instead of giving money to the poor who don't know Christ? Or we feel a little bit of weird Christian guilt if we help provide a meal for somebody who's struggling through, oh, I don't know, a brand new baby in their house, like my family is, instead of just going out and feeding somebody on a street corner. But they're both necessary and they're both important. And God seems to have honored a group of people who were very interested in caring for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this early church to the point that every single day people were being saved. I don't know any church in the world that has that testimony right now. So that's a very good thing, and that's God's work in response to the faithfulness that he sees among the members of this congregation. 
The early church, from my perspective, is killing it at being in harmony with each other. And again, if you look at the order, verse 41 is important because these people belong to Jesus first. They start with him. They hear about him, they confess him, they love him, they follow him, and then he gives them to each other to become a functional body. These first church members allowed anybody who wanted to, to use their stuff, to borrow it. And if borrowing wasn't enough for them, it was culturally normal in this church for these people to go out and sell something that they owned in order to get enough money together to come back into the church and meet the need of somebody who was a fellow believer. Which maybe feels a little bit extreme. But think about it this way, church. If the church is a body, if winter comes and you don't have snow boots, you don't just put on an extra coat and hope that some of the warm blood from your abdomen is going to make it down into your feet and keep you from getting frostbite, right? You don't live that way. No, if you have an extra coat, you go sell it, and then you buy some boots to go on your feet because your feet belong to your body, and they're a necessary part of what you have going on. It's not the feet's job to figure out how to go out and earn a little bit of extra money so they can get their own shoes and then come back and rejoin the body once they're warm. So there's a sense of responsibility. There's a sense of mutual shared understanding of everybody's need in this body that we see in Acts chapter 2. And I just don't know if that's normal for churches in, in the world that I live in, in the Western world, in these United States. I think we spend a lot more time achieving on our own, and we want to bring something worthwhile into the gathering instead of coming to the gathering with a need and having that need met. It feels a lot better to be the hero. But we're not a lot of times. And I think we really know that, but maybe we're afraid to say it. Maybe we're scared of what would happen. Maybe somebody in our life who helped raise us told us so many times that you don't take charity and you don't beg and sympathy is bad that we're listening to that voice and we're believing that narrative instead of what the Bible tells us is true. Because Jesus says, come empty-handed if your hands are empty. It's not better to scramble and figure out what you can carry into the gathering of the body to look like you've got something under control. That's worse. Because you're not going to receive the care that you need if you live like that. You have to show the wound in order to receive the care. And that's what's happening in the book of Acts. These people are not too proud to tell each other the truth. Because they belong to each other. They belong to each other. Their lives are shared. They see themselves as one organism. 1 Corinthians 12 to me is persuasive. Acts chapter 2 is inspiring, but neither of those really tell you what to do. Is the point of today's sermon that you need to sell everything you have and then bring a big check to the church? You know what? If you want to try that, you certainly may. I'm not going to act like this is all allegory and God might not want that for your family, but I think it can look different from that. And I think specifically, if we can move now to 1 John chapter 1, we're going to see really, really practically how we can do this. If you want to be a person who has community, if you're sitting in your chair right now and you're going, I don't have this, whether you go to a life group or not, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because then that would kind of indict all the people that you've been attending life group with. But if you're feeling like, I don't have this community and I'd like to have it by Friday of this week, well, here's what you can do. Go to 1 John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5. If you want to be fully known, if you want to know other believers in a way that feels like you are interconnected, organs and tissues and muscles all working in harmony to move the body of Christ, Paul says this. He says, this is the message that we've heard from Jesus, and it's the same message that we tell you, that God is light and that in God there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with God while we are walking in darkness, we are lying. We are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light in the same way that Christ is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus 
The Son of God cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. That should haunt you that that's possible, that you can lie to yourself enough that you start believing it. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then Jesus is faithful. He is just. He will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and God's word is not in us. So if you want to belong to a group of Christians who love Jesus and who love you, all you have to do to make that happen, because nobody ever told me this, okay, for, for the first 18 years of my Christian life, between ages 7 and 25, until I sat in the, that pizza restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky with my best friend, and he said to me, community is important to you. Nobody ever actually told me how to do this. Here's what it takes. One step that has three parts. All you have to do is tell the truth. Tell the truth. That's what you need to do. You need to resolve in your heart that when you sit with the group of people that you are attempting to build community with, that you answer every question they ask with the truth. It's really hard. It's incredibly scary. If people knew the real you, if people knew all the stuff about you, what if they ask a specific set of questions and you answer those questions and it makes you sound like you're a serial killer? Are they going to want you to come back? Are they going to trust you? Are they going to eat the dish you brought to life group? Or are they going to think you're trying to poison them? I don't know. You have to trust that you're not just human beings sitting around having a dinner party, but that the Spirit of God is at work in your midst. And in the same way that God will honor the truth that you tell, he will inspire other people to ask the questions they need to ask to draw that truth out of you. There's more happening than you having to be good at conversation in order to be in community. That's all you have to do is tell the truth. Here's what it looks like. Look back at verses 5 and 6. The first thing you can stop doing is you can stop disguising your sin. John says that we've heard the message from God himself, that he's light and there's no darkness in him. And so if that's true and we're going to be in fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, then we're lying. So we ought not do that. We ought to stop disguising our sin. Another way to think about this is confession. And what confession is, is it's telling the truth about the sin in your life. That's all it is. Don't deflect. Don't try to give your sin a bath before you get to life group. Don't try to minimize or dismiss or hide your sin. If sin has found a foothold in your life, then you should say that. If you keep doing the same things over and over again that you hate, you should say that. If you're living in constant fear and anxiety about the future, you should say that. If you have something else in the center of your life that's not Jesus, you should say that. You don't have to dig up something wrong, okay? We're not saying you have to be dramatic here. If, if your life is going pretty good, you can say that. That's the truth. We don't owe each other like this laundry list of doom and gloom, which sometimes Christian groups can turn into. But I know how hard this is. And what I'm telling you is community, practicing community is more than just spending time with close friends. It's supernatural. And it's hard to do because people have to be filled with the Spirit of God to confess. Guilty people don't confess. Like you've seen enough episodes of Dateline. What do guilty people do? They bury something in their yard every time. And where do the police look first? In their yard, and there it is, and they go to jail. That's what we do in our lives. We're not really clever. We don't have good strategies to hide our sin. We stick it in the same closet over and over and over again. And anybody who's close to God has the sixth sense to be able to look probably first into our marriage and then into our relationship with our children and then into our relationship with money. And in one of those three closets, they're going to find whatever we're hiding. And if you didn't know that, sorry, there you go. Now you know it. Those might be the three best places to start next time you're in life group. How's your marriage? How are your kids? How's your relationship with money? We're not smarter than, than everybody else is. We're not clever. We haven't evolved to the point where we're really good at disguising our sin. These are the places that we stick our skeletons. So just tell the truth. Let them out. 
What is the absolute worst thing that could happen? That some bigoted person who called themselves a Christian rejects you? Do you want to be accepted by them anyway? I don't. Not really. I don't want to play a game in a way where people who I probably wouldn't like if they would tell me the truth about themselves let me fit in with their group. Like, I don't need to sit with you and the other popular girls at lunch. I don't need to do that. I would rather tell you the truth about who God is because that's where my testimony comes from. My testimony includes the darkness in my life. My testimony is not that I was doing pretty good and God got me doing really good. That's not true. I was an enemy of God. So if he's at the center of my life, a miracle happened. He wasn't close. It wasn't that he was in second place and a few small tweaks needed to happen and I needed to start reading my Bible a little more often and now things are going well. The son of God took my sin and he died so that I can live like I'm dead with you guys. So say that. That's easy for you to accept when I say it from a stage. Say it on Tuesday. Say it on Wednesday. Say it on Thursday. Whenever your group meets, you are able to do this. You can confess your sin because you're not just you anymore. You carry the spirit of God with you. So yield to Jesus. Number two, look at verses seven and eight. I want you to stop disguising your sin and I want you to start sharing your process. This is what repentance looks like. If confession is telling the truth about your sin, repentance is a gospel-centered response to that confession. It's what are you gonna do about it? And sin is supposed to be warred with in community. Here, verses seven and eight again. If we walk in the light as Christ is in the light, then we have fellowship with who? With one another. Have you ever connected those dots before? Walking uprightly is not just about a good relationship with God, it's the avenue that leads you into community. So it's a team sport. Repentance is a team sport. Warring with your sin is a team sport. The intention of the Bible is not to get you to go out in the wilderness for 40 days and come back purified like the Buddha. That's a very Eastern concept, okay? You're supposed to be in the trenches, in the mud, with each other. That's what war is like. Successful warriors fight on really, really tightly knit teams to the point where they become instinctual in how they respond and work together. And that's what God has in mind for you and I. Don't be the body part in this body of Christ that has had cancer for years and years and years and is trying to hide it under a limp. Because that cancer will metastasize. It'll spread through the rest of the body, it happens. Local churches become ravaged by the same sin categorically. It just happens. When people are not confessing and they're not telling the truth about what's happening in their homes, these things start to happen in all of their homes at once and they're all so scared of what anybody else would think if they would come out and tell the truth that everybody stays quiet and they just die together. I mean, it's like the Titanic, spiritually. They just hit an iceberg and everybody goes, this ship will never sink as the water's just going over their heads and they just drown. And then they don't want to go to church anymore because why would they? They don't want to try. They don't really want to talk to God anymore. And you can preempt that. You can throw each other the life raft that you need on your way down. And you can move to another boat and you can ride on it until it starts to sink. And then you can, I mean, you can just continue to say, I did it again. I sinned again and I'm sorry. And I want to be better, but I don't know how. And I need your help and I need God to change me. Would that be so bad if you said that? I don't think so. I think it could be the beginning of something really important. And then finally, verses 9 and 10. If you'll do these things, if you'll stop disguising your sin and start sharing your process, you should expect to be restored. You're allowed to. You're allowed to expect that God will restore you. Do you know that? You can be hopeful about the nature of your sin in your life. Because salvation is a miracle, you can believe that God can do anything. That's not health and wealth, prosperity, gospel. That's the core of what it means to be a Christian, is to believe that God can still change you. 
That's not too good to be true, and it's not something that's even dangerous to believe. It would be more dangerous to not believe it because you would continue to live in sin, and then you would beat yourself up, and you would rely on your own selfishness, and you wouldn't really be living like a Christian. You'd be living like a person who's trying really hard to be good, and that's not what it means to be a Christian. We talked about confession. We talked about repentance, expecting to be restored. This is where forgiveness comes into play. This is the active ingredient on the bottle called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's forgiveness. It's the manufacturer's guarantee, if you'll confess and repent, that this is coming for you. And so I mentioned this a second ago. I want to just briefly say to you that in Christian circles, we have what I call the cult of commiseration, where we get close to each other, and three out of four of our good friends are having a bad day, and friend number four just goes, well, I don't know what to do, so they just make up something to fit in. I've also been struggling with this thing, maybe, I guess I have been, that you guys are, because I don't want to just like be the ray of sunshine in the middle of your rain cloud. But that's not fair. That isn't any better than you drumming up some really good news to tell a group of people that are living dishonestly. They're both dishonesty. One of them is maybe a little more culturally acceptable or comfortable for you and your friends, but neither of them are good. Misery loves company, but sometimes life does go well for us. If we expect to be restored, there will be seasons in our lives where the faithfulness of God will sustain us. Do you believe that? Have you lost sight of the possibility that your marriage can actually be good? That things could go well at your work. That the person you've been begging to come to church with you, that you've been begging to hear about Jesus, might actually say, okay, I'm ready to do that now. Good things do happen in Christians' lives, and if we're not careful, we'll insulate ourselves from that. One friend who's on a really bad streak might bring everybody down, and what that friend really needs is they need to hear about hope. They need to be exposed to the possibility that God might still have something to do with them in their life, and that can be your testimony shared in their life. It is not holier than thou to be dealing with different sins than thou. (laughs) There's maybe a way to think about this. So I'll give you one more analogy and then we'll land the plane here. If we're going to be quick to forgive one another, we have to go back to the idea of being a body. Here's what this looks like. This will be silly, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. We have a newborn in our home, uh, and so I spend a lot of time carrying a bassinet up and down the stairs because he just doesn't really know where he wants to sleep, and we need him to sleep. And so we'll kind of do whatever we have to to get him to go to, to sleep. And so we'll move him into one room, move him to another. So we have this, this place in our stairs. They go up, they turn right, because we have a split-level home, because we live in Anchorage. And there's a moment in the stair-stepping that I've memorized where I have to lower my head, because I'm six foot four, or I will hit my forehead on the overhang of the doorway of the stairs. But when I have a bassinet in my hands... I sort of lose my awareness a little bit, and I'm really more worried about not scraping it along the walls so that I get my security deposit back in a year and a half. So two days ago, I'm juggling this bassinet. There's a sleeping baby swaddled inside of it. I'm trying not to disturb him because that's the whole point. And I smacked my head into the wall so loud that my daughter on another floor of our home could hear it. She thought that something fell down inside the garage. She went to the garage first, and I was like, there's like cartoon birds spinning around my head, and she came in. Okay, in that moment, here's what I didn't do. I didn't set the bassinet down, go in the mirror and go, eyes, what is wrong with you, eyes? You can't see that overhang? You've walked through these stairs a thousand times. Are you not thinking about what you're doing to the forehead? Think about the forehead for a minute. No eyes for a week. Eyes, you're out. You better figure it out. You can come back when you can see again. How do Christians talk to each other? Amputation in the physical body is rare. It's not normal. But amputation in the spiritual body is very common. And I don't think those things are supposed to work that way. Quick forgiveness means you understand that people might do something that damages the rest of the body on accident because they're like you. 
That doesn't mean they have to quit doing the responsibility God gave them. It means they need the help of the rest of the body to work together to restore them. That's what they need. They need to be invited back in. They need to be told, oh, we got to shake this off. There's bigger things to worry about. In the moment that I smacked my head on the overhang of our stairs, I still had a baby in my arms who needed my help. And there is still a world out there who needs this body of Christ to care for it. So if we take a lot of time to criticize the parts of ourselves that aren't performing up to snuff, all we're going to do is just internalize. And we're going to crumple and we're going to starve and we're going to dissolve. And there just won't be a church anymore. And that's a very real possibility for a church that isn't looking to Jesus as primary. Certainly, church, there are situations where parts of the body need serious rehabilitation or may even become infected to the point that they have to be removed. That exists in the New Testament. It's something that we have to consider, but that should be rare, and it should be an absolute last resort. So here's what I know. I know that I am raising the stakes of your life group this week, and I'm raising the stakes of mine too. My hope is and my prayer is not that you'll be deeply uncomfortable and get sick the day before life group so you don't have to go and be honest. What I'm hoping will happen, so sorry if that was going to be your excuse, uh, what I'm hoping will happen is that maybe you'll just try this. Just, just, just for one life group, just tell God, God, I will do it tonight. I will tell the truth every time that I'm asked anything. And that means I'm going to talk about what's going really good and I'm going to talk about what's going really poorly when those things come up. And then I'll just see what happens. And what I can promise you is the community you've been searching for will become something you can create. You can build it alongside people who love Jesus like you. So if it's all about Jesus, then we belong to him. And we can do community through his power, not our own. He is the one who has chosen to knit us together. So tell the truth, confess, repent, forgive, and you'll belong. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for time in your word today. Thank you, God, that you're sustaining. It's like the understatement of the year. You are sustaining. You maintain us. Would you do that, God? Would you sustain our souls this week? Would you... uh, please do that for us? Would you lift us up? We need to be drawn near to you. We're not very good at getting close on our own. And God, we're going to need your help to believe these truths. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter how we feel right now. It matters what we're going to do when we get together with our community. So I just pray very simply, God, that you'd inspire us, that you would make it worth it. Whatever that looks like, whatever it takes, just allow us to understand that, that this is a necessary step in our lives. It's worth the fear, it's worth the discomfort, it's worth whatever pain it may require for us to tell the truth, and God, that that you would honor that, that we would be a people who are knit together because of what we know about each other, what we care about each other, the burdens that we can share. So, we love you, God. Jesus, we ask that you remain the center of all we do, all the time. We pray these things in your name, amen.